If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Psalm 34, if you please. Psalm 34, as we continue our fourth annual summer in the Psalms series. As we've explained as we go, let me just remind you, we are, what we do in our summer in Psalms is every week we try to pick a different genre uh, to uh, read, preach, pray, and then sing. And so in the first week we looked at lament. Last week uh, with Pastor Nathan was a hymn, is that genre? Today is a Thanksgiving. Next week we'll look at a praise and then a trust psalm, okay? So today we're going to be in Psalm 34, and of course we're going to read the whole thing. It'll be behind me on the screen in my translation as well. If you guys say, I got it. All right, we're going to do something a little different, okay? Before we read the psalm in its entirety, I want you to look at it, okay? And I want you to look at the heading, okay? It says, a psalm of David, you see it, right? When he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. So I want to consider this context before we read the psalm, so that you have this context in mind when we read it, okay? So we're told the specific context that this was penned in, right? So the context can be found, if you want to look later, I encourage you to do that in 1 Samuel. And David was anointed king, even while Saul was still running and ruling Israel. And you remember the story, don't you? This is the most, one of the most famous stories in the Bible. The Israelite army stands against the mighty army of the Philistines, and their champion, their giant, and his name is Goliath. Everyone was afraid of Goliath, right? Except for David. And David stood against Goliath, and he killed him with a rock and a sling. It gave, God gave Israel the victory over the Philistines. Well, David's fame began to spread, okay, as he continued to find victory over the Philistines. And the woman would even sing about David, a song saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And so this drove Saul to a jealous rage. And so he wanted to kill David. He even threw a spear at him while he was playing the harp. Uh, but David, he missed him and David fled. And where did David flee after he knew that Saul wanted to kill him? To the most unlikely city, Gath, which is the hometown of Goliath. Well, he wasn't exactly welcome there either. And when the king of Gath, Achish, who is the same person as Abimelech in this heading, okay, found out David was there, David became afraid and he pretended to be crazy. And he was clawing at the gate. He was letting the drool run down his beard. And this worked. And Achish saw this and he said, in effect, I have no need of another crazy person in my house. And so he drove David out of Gath, and David found safety in a cave where we are told many who were distressed, in debt, and discontented gathered around him. And in this context, Psalm 34 was written. So keep that in mind, and let's read it now, all right? Psalm 34. God's Word says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. 
Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is a man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. But they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you to fear the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves lengths of his days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen. It's God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. Some things you just need to experience. This is true, yes? There are things in life that need to be experienced firsthand in order to truly appreciate and understand their beauty or grandeur or flavor. Think of places of beauty in nature. You can see a picture of Niagara Falls. You can hear facts about their size and output and things like this. But unless you go and see them in person, yes? Unless you see them in person, you won't be able to truly appreciate them. You can say it's a lot of things. Rocky Mountains, Grand Canyon, Yellowstone, Northern Lights. You, you can hear about them. You can see pictures of them. But unless you experience them in person, you won't truly understand their magnificence. You can say the same thing about a lot of things, right? With food, you could describe a good steak or something like the sweetness of honey, but words can only do so much. You have to taste them for yourself. I think of another example you could likely relate to. Baseball is my favorite sport in the world. It's the first sport I fell in love with. But when I became a baseball fan, Colorado didn't have a professional team. All I could do was watch the games on TV. But then in 1993, we got a pro team in Denver, and I got to go to my first baseball game in person. And after that, after I experienced it firsthand, I knew there was nothing else like it. Watching on TV was great, but being there was uniquely special. You know, you've been to the ballpark, right? There are things you can't replicate when you're at the ballpark. The smell, right? The ballpark has a unique smell. The smell of food, the fresh grass, the in-person sound of the ball hitting the glove and the bat hitting the sweet spot, and the joining of thousands of others to cheer or boo or sing. There's just nothing like it. You have to experience it in person. In the psalm we're considering this morning, we see David as someone who has experienced the goodness of the Lord. And so he tells us about that experience. But he doesn't just want us to hear, you understand, about the experience. He invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good. 
for ourselves because there's nothing like it. David wants to tell of the Lord and his deeds, but he knows those who experience the Lord will be driven to action. He has found, verse 12, how one can live the good life and the lengthening of days, even the, in the midst of, verse 19, many afflictions that will come upon the righteous. And he's saying, come and hear my experience and then go and experience how good God is for yourself. This is the story of the psalm. And so this will be our structure this morning, okay? Two points. Point one, David's experience. And point two, David's invitation, okay? David's experience and David's invitation. But please do note, even though we are considering David's experience and David's invitation, this psalm is utterly about the Lord and who he is and what he's done and what is being offered to you through this all is to know for yourself the sweetness of the Lord. So point number one, David's experience. Think again about David's circumstances in writing this psalm. He's been driven out by his Israelite kinsmen, the king wants him dead. He went to hide amongst enemies. He had to feign madness to flee, and he finds safe haven in a cave. This is the person who's supposed to be the next king, but he's left fleeing and hiding. But now, what does he say in the first three verses? This is, I think this is remarkable, isn't it? Look at verses one through three again. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. <coughs> Excuse me. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Note that he does not begin by talking about his circumstances or his plight. He doesn't talk about the difficulties that he's facing. He doesn't even really lament, even though lament would have been good and right in this instance. What does he do instead? Instead, he says, I'm going to bless the Lord. And how often? At all times. His praise, it will continually be in my mouth. In other words, I won't stop praising him. I won't stop talking about him. And what about David's boast? What's his boast? He actually had a fair amount of things to boast about, doesn't he? He's been anointed king. He's a giant slayer. He slew many of the Philistines to where his, this mighty people were afraid of him. He had people fawning over him and singing his praises, and yet, who does he boast about? See, we, we humans, we enjoy boasting, yes? We love it. I love it. You love it. We all love to tell people, right, about our deeds, about our accomplishments, about our credentials, our reputation, the things we've seen and done, the things that we think will amaze and impress other people. And so we tell of ourselves. Isn't that true? Come on, it's true. And we can't help it. If you think about it, boasting is everywhere in our society. It's everywhere. And it's encouraged. Social media is mainly for boasting. Advertisements center on boasting. We boast about sports. And what about our politics, if not a bunch of fellas and ladies who want you to vote for them because of how awesome they are. Boasting's everywhere. It's applauded. It's encouraged because we can't, we, we can just call it confidence, right? In an attempt to make it a positive personality trait rather than calling it pride, which is what it is. But David shows in his life how he is countercultural 
in this respect. Instead of David boasting about David, what does he say? Look down at the text. My soul will make its boast where? Where? In the Lord. He, he is saying he is determined. He is set on. He will make his boast in the Lord alone. No other boasting will do. And he will bless the Lord, praise the Lord, boast in the Lord, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord at all times. He says, it doesn't matter what my circumstances say. I will worship Yahweh because his goodness is not determined by my circumstances. Whether I'm on the throne of Israel or in a cave, I will worship the Lord. Whether people are fawning over me and singing my praises or I'm on the run and having spears thrown at me by mad tyrants, I will praise God's name. And again, what's remarkable, remarkable is that this is where he starts the psalm. If it's me, I'm probably beginning my prayer with a complaint or a recounting of all my unfavorable circumstances and misfortune, but not David. He says, I will praise the Lord every day and night, no matter where I find myself or what pain or hardship I'm enduring. But why? Why can he praise the Lord amidst his persecution? Because verse 4, I sought the Lord and what? He answered me. And what else? He delivered me from how many of my fears? All my fears. You see the pattern in verse 4? He called, the Lord heard, and the Lord delivered. This is the same pattern in verse 6, right? With David speaking in the third person. This poor man cried, the Lord heard me, and he saved me out of all my troubles. And it's the same pattern. You look at verse 17. He promises the righteous. The saint cries, the Lord hears, the Lord delivers. David experiences that he can call on the Lord. He can seek him. He can cry out, and the Lord will not only hear, he will deliver him out of his fears and troubles. David can write from a cave on the lamb from his enemies that God has heard and delivered him. Rather than lamenting being on the run in a musty cave, David recounts how the spear from Saul didn't hit him, though it could have, how the king of Gath could have killed him, but drove him away instead. And David counts these as God hearing him cry out and saving him. This is an important aspect of being a thankful person. See, when we're going through hardship, we only tend to see what's right in front of us. Yes? To the point that we forget how God has delivered us in the past. And we believe we are owed something better than what our present afflictions are telling us. We could get bogged down in our present afflictions to where we have a sort of spiritual amnesia. We think only of what's going on in the present and don't recount to ourselves and others how God has been faithful to deliver us in the past. One writer said, Man only likes to count his trouble, but he does not count his joys. Similarly, Spurgeon said, we are too prone to engrave our trials in marble and write our blessings in the sand. A good example of this we saw in our study through the book of Exodus. Remember how God rescued Israel? Out of cruel bondage in Egypt, 
through the strikes and the plagues and Passover, and then he parted the Red Sea so the Israelites could walk through the dry land. Then God made the sea come back together and drown their pursuing enemies, and then they sang of God's kindness and grace, and then they followed God in pillar and cloud. But then remember how it took them only three days before they were complaining. And they were asking Moses, did you bring us out here to kill us with thirst? Then later they complained, not long after that, did you come out to kill us with hunger? What happened there? It took them three days to forget God's gracious and mighty rescue of them. All they could see in the moment was that they were hungry. Forgetting all of God's kindness to them in the past, even the recent past. Is it possible that you and I do the same thing? Our present circumstances may, in fact, be painful and lamentable. But don't you think we would be helped if, like David, remember times when we sought the Lord and he answered us and delivered us from our troubles? Don't you have times? Don't you have times you can look back on when the Lord delivered you? Yes? All of you do. Would that remembrance alleviate present trouble? No. But it would certainly cure some of our fears because we recall how God has been kind to us in difficult circumstances before. Further, David believes himself to be a poor man. Thus, expresses a humility that says that he was owed nothing from God. And yet... God both heard him and acted by delivering him, even if that deliverance was not exactly what David had in mind. And David is grateful because he knows he's a poor man who isn't owed deliverance. But David is drawing off of the Exodus event, isn't he? Did you notice this? See what he says in verse 5? Those who looked on him are radiant. This, this reminds us of when God passed before Moses, do you remember, in Exodus 34? Moses came down from the mountain literally shining, radiating from his encounter with the Lord. Or think of Numbers 6, when God told Moses to give Aaron the blessing, he was to pray over the people. You know this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord what? Cause his face to shine on you. Or consider verse 7, how this draws off the angel of the Lord going before the people in Exodus 14 and into the promised land to vanquish their foes before they got so where they were supposed to be. So what is David doing? <coughs> Don't you see? Not only is he drawing off times when God had been gracious to him personally, he's drawing off of times when God has been gracious to people in the past, to other people. He knows firsthand that God has heard and delivered him in response to his cries, but he also knows from the saints who came before him how God has been gracious to them too. David has learned that God is truly compassionate, as Exodus says, and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. See, God's character is the biggest reason why David knows he could cry out and be delivered. It's God's character. Yes, he could draw off of past experiences from the saints. Yes, he could draw from his own experience when God delivered him. But the greatest reason David knows for why he should praise God every day and every night and can run to God in good and bad is because, verse 8, the Lord is what? 
just good. He's good. I want you to look down at your copy of God's Word, okay? Look at this psalm again. In this 22-verse psalm, I count no less than 24 mentions of who God is and what what He does. 24 in 22 verses, some of which are repetitions. I'm going to run through them. Look at, see if you can see them. He answers cries. He delivers. He makes the saints radiant. He takes away shame. He hears. He saves from trouble. He encamps and rescues those who fear him. He is good. He is a refuge. He fills needs. He causes no lack to those who seek him. His eyes are toward the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. His face is against the wicked. He cuts off the wicked from the memory. The righteous cry, and he delivers out of trouble. He is near the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. He delivers the righteous from affliction. He keeps all his bones. He condemns those who persecute his people, but he will not condemn those who find refuge in him. You see that part of how David finds comfort is simply recalling who God is, what he does. He finds safe haven in this God because of who God is. And so David knows that even when he's afflicted and troubled, he can still rejoice and sing God's praises because he knows all things are in the hand of a God who simultaneously can crush the wicked and is near the brokenhearted. He remembers who God is, and thus he finds safety. I think of uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, which is book seven in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And there's this scene where the main characters of this particular book, Jill and Eustace, are about to set off on this difficult journey. Before they set out, the great lion Aslan, who's like the Christ figure of this allegory, tells them they must remember him and his promises and what he's told them. This is what he says. He says, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake up in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, he says, I give you a warning. Here on the mountains, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so in Narnia. Here on the mountains, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all like you expect them to look when you meet them there. This is key, okay? He says, that is why it is so important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. For David, remembering and believing made all the difference. No matter what the circumstances were, because he held fast to God and his promises. Like Aslan said there, sometimes the difficulty of trials will confuse your mind and play tricks on you. They will make you think that they're the most real thing and will forget God's character and heart, which is why it's so important that we always remember what we know is true about God as revealed in his word. Nothing else matters. But see, David does not desire to keep these things to himself. He invites us to experience what he has experienced, which is our point number two. David's invitation. Point two, David's invitation. 
You see that throughout the psalm, David weaves in exhortations and invitations, which can be summarized in verse 8. Verse 8 is a good summary. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Obviously, David does not mean that we can literally taste and literally see God. James Hamilton describes what David means like this. He said, David's call to taste and see that Yahweh is good summons his audience to indulge their senses on the discernible delights of knowing God. We neither taste nor see him literally, but we can figuratively savor and behold his goodness. It's like we said at the beginning, there are some things you just need to experience. If you've ever eaten honey from a comb, have any of you ever eaten honey from a comb? And you meet someone who has never tasted honey in their life. You could try, right, to describe the sweetness, but at some point you'll probably just have to say, Words don't do it justice. Come, let's go get you some honey for you to taste and see for yourself. Or try to describe a beautiful sunrise or other scenery to somebody. You'll eventually have to say the best thing is for you to go and see for yourself. David knows that people best experience God firsthand, and so he calls his audience to enjoy him the way that he has. When David opens his psalm by saying, I will bless the Lord at all times, what does he say in verse 3? He invites us, come and magnify the Lord, what? With me. Let's exalt his name, what? Together. In other words, come and taste to see the beauty of the Lord yourself. David worships God at all times, day and night, from a shepherd's field to a throne to a cave, but he doesn't want to worship God alone. He knows profoundly the value and necessity of worshiping with fellow saints. I mean, here he is penning a song to sing in corporate gatherings. Now, David doesn't discount the need of our living a life of worship, of worshiping God at all times as individuals, having things like personal quiet times, personal prayer time, to the way we work and play and relate to our family and friends. All this can be used to worship God. This is why he could say, I will worship him at all times. But David also profoundly knows that we were created for community. We were created to worship God with other people who we have committed ourselves to. There is just no replacement for gathering like we are now. There's just no replacement for gathering with people like we are now, who we have covenanted with in order to join our focus towards the praise of the Lord. To to go from a week that you just had of focusing on yourself in a world full of sickening narcissism to having a corporate focus completely moved away from us to this great God. You need that. I need that. We were made for this. We weren't created in order to go off on our own and not join ourselves to a local church. God's design for our worship and growth is communal. Sometimes I'll hear people say they could just as well live their Christian life alone. Have you heard this before? I could just as well live my Christian life alone as I can in the church. That's just not true. That's just, that's the sort of thing that Satan would like you to believe. The Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. It wasn't designed by our triune God who exists in community in eternity's past to be an isolationist religion. 
And so to say that we could do this thing, I want you to think about this, okay? To say that we could do this thing by ourselves is to say that we have a better way to worship God than God does. God's design for your growth is to be with others and for your presence to be an encouragement to them too so that they could grow. It's to join your voices with theirs, to sing Christ-exalting songs to them and each other. It's to confess sin together, to receive assurance of pardon together, to read the same word and hear the same sermon and grow through books of Bible together and partake of the Lord's Supper together and through these ordinary means of grace that you will grow. That's God's design. Not Lone Ranger Christianity, which is no Christianity at all. You just can't replace, yes, can you replace the worship gathering? You just can't replace it. Because they give you something you can't get alone. Let's illustrate it like this. C.S. Lewis, who I just mentioned a moment ago, you guys know him, he was in a famous circle of friends who were all authors, and they're called the Inklings, okay? It included Gerald Tolkien, who you know from The Lord of the Rings, and another author named Charles Williams, and well, Charles Williams unexpectedly died. And I want you to listen to what C.S. Lewis said uh, following his death, reflecting on this loss. He said, in each of my friends, there's something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Tolkien's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Tolkien, Having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of him. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by a resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed increases the fruition which each of us has of God. For every soul, seeing him in his own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That says an old author is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, holy, holy to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. Tim Keller, Keller reflecting on this, said, Lewis is saying that it took a community to know an individual. How much more would this be true of Jesus Christ? That's the very design of the church. Even seen in this ancient psalm, to pursue Christ together, to look to him and be radiant, to which we shine for and to one another, and doing so will draw more out than we could possibly be drawn out alone. But now, see after, see how after he invites us to worship with him and taste and see the Lord is good? He invites us to fear the Lord in verse 9. Do you see this? And he tells us why we should fear the Lord. For to those who fear him, there is no want or lack. But then he makes a contrast, doesn't he? The young lions do lack. And suffer hunger. But they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. So what's he saying? The picture of young lions is that for all of the lion's strength and your, their youthful vigor, they still oftentimes want for food and starve. This is the self-made, self-assured, self-reliant person. And there is meant to be an irony here. The humble from verse 2, those who consider themselves, verse 6, Poor before God, those who believe they have no strength of their own, they'll lack no good thing. But for those who think they're strong and rich and self-reliant will ultimately be found to lack and suffer hunger forever. 
Their strength is an illusion, he says. It's a mirage because before holy God, they're the ones who are truly poor, even if they're impressive and well-to-do according to the world. You must see yourself a poor man, a poor woman if you are to be filled with what God offers. If you're already full, you not only won't go to God in desperation or spiritual poverty, you'll be so full of your own idols and pedigree and self-assurance that there won't be anything, any room for anything else anyway. We should rather fear the Lord. And this is a positive thing, this fear of the Lord. See, we moderns, we think that fear is wholly bad and negative thing to avoid, don't we? Fear is bad. As Michael Reeves says, when your culture is hedonistic, your religion therapeutic, and your goal, a feeling of personal well-being, fear will be the ever-present headache. But the Bible doesn't think of fear of the Lord this way. To biblical authors, fear of the Lord is the right and proper response to him. It's a trembling, joyful, intense feeling of happiness in the Lord that delights in his person. It's seeing him as a good father. And notes Reeves, we will trust God only to the extent that we have this fear that leans towards him. God is the best of fathers, isn't he? He's the ideal and perfect father, right? The best of earthly fathers are those whose children fear them with a healthy, respectful fear. They do not want to disappoint him or let him down, not only because they know him to be a strong man who will bring necessary punishment because they don't want to disappoint him because they love him and want to please him. It's not so much they don't want to break his rules, they don't want to break his heart. But they also know if they blow it big time, they can find grace and comfort and safety in his arms. This is the best of earthly fathers, the best of childlike fear they receive in response, knowing there will be repercussions for breaking his rules, but also knowing they can always run to him when they mess up. This is, in some respects, how we ought to fear the Lord. We both have a healthy fear and awe, knowing he could crush us because of our transgressions, so we see him as powerful and holy, but we know we can run into his arms and will therein find grace, forgiveness, and safe haven. And like a good father, you know he is provider. You know he'll meet your every need. You'll have no lack, something David repeats in verses 9 and 10. Does this mean that if we fear the Lord, We'll get whatever we want in this life. Is that what it means? If you fear the Lord, will you get that new boat you've been eyeballing? Or that new car or that new house? Haven't we all asked for something that God did not give us? Aren't there things we want that we do not have? How can it be that for those who fear him, there is no want, and that those who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing then? Simply put, if God saw that having what we asked for would be for our good, he would give it to us. If we don't have it, it must not be for our good. Do you see? We all know Romans 8, 28, don't we? That God works all things, what? For our good. But sometimes we forget that his definition of our good and our definition of what's good for us don't always line up. Actually, they rarely do. We must trust that he knows better what we need than we do. Again, like a 
good and loving father. Think of it like this. God gives us everything we would give to ourselves if we were in his position and knew everything that he knew. Spurgeon said it well as he usually does. He says, there are many things for which I wish and which I sincerely think to be good. But I say at once, if I have not got them, they are not good. For if they were good, good for me, and I'm truly seeking God, I should have them. If they were good things, my heavenly Father would not deny them to me. He has said he would not, and I believe his pledged word. This means that even when we can't see God's hand, we can trust his heart. Friend, I don't know if you know this, but God is more dedicated to your good than you are. Do you know that? God is more dedicated to your good than you are. His good for you is for you to grow in likeness of Christ and to make him your refuge. What if what he withholds from you is to spur you on to make him your all in all? What if you're like the young lions and you're self-dependent, but he withholds so you'll see yourself as poor and run to him? What if he takes you through trials to strengthen your trust in him or so that you could be an encouragement to others when they go through similar trials as David is for us here. Because you see what verse 19 says, right? David says that the righteous will have many afflictions, but what? The Lord will deliver him out of all. There's no tension here. The righteous will struggle. They will suffer in this life. There will be hardships but they will still lack no good thing. God, verse 15, sees all you're going through and never stops watching over you. His ear is always open to your cry so that when you are in inevitable afflictions, you can find an open ear in God that you know cares for you because you know his character, remember? And his compassion. Friend, when you feel brokenhearted, guess what? The Lord is near to you. Do you feel crushed in spirit? A friend, he will save you. He sees and he hears your cries. They will never fall on deaf ears. Even our groans are heard and received by this God. You know, unless you live under a rock, you saw that NASA's new James Webb telescope has sent back its first pictures. You guys seen this on the news, right? Which NASA released to the public, these pictures. The telescope is about a million miles away from Earth. And it costs $10 billion. Good use of money, right? To build. And has taken pictures of parts of space at a distance we've never seen before. Okay? The pictures it sent back, they're pretty incredible if you've seen it. How many of you have seen these pictures? Okay, so some of you do live under a rock, okay? <clears throat> but after church, don't do it right now. You can Google these pictures and see them. They're pretty incredible, and they're basically a look back in time <laughs> because of how long it takes light to travel. One of the pictures uh, in particular features, it just looks like a smattering of dots. But they're not stars, they're galaxies. And... That means that each of these dots have within themselves millions of stars. They are 7,600 light years away. You know what that means? That means if you could travel at the speed of light, it would still take you 7,600 years to get there. And a light year, by the way, is 5.8 trillion miles. 
We can't get there. Uh, we don't even know. You, you look, they're colored. But NASA added that later. We don't even know what colors are out there because they're infrared pictures. We are just now, after all the times that humans have been around, we're just now seeing these parts of space and we don't even know what's in them or what's beyond them. And we'll never get to them. God does, though. God made all those galaxies. They're in the palm of his hands. His omnipresence means he's there, too. He's creator and holder of galaxies that man can barely take a picture of. He spoke and they were there. What a mighty God this is. Now, I want you to think about that. Let's read verse 18 again. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted saves those who are crushed in spirit. He's near to you when you're brokenhearted. When no one, you ever been in a position where it seems like no one seems to understand? He understands. When you don't think anyone has felt the way that you do, he feels it with you. The creator of all galaxies... <laughs> That man is just barely discovering and knows nothing about is near to you. You know all that's required, right? Cry out to him. That's all. Just to cry out. And you could do that, can't you? Can't you do that? You know, this week we're going to have another daughter, and guess what? I'm not going to have to teach her how to cry. She just know, right? She'll come out of the womb doing it. <laughs> Even babies know how to cry. And so do you. And that's all it takes for God to be near to you. That's all it's required. And if you look around and you see the wicked seemingly prospering and getting away with sin and injustice while you struggle, worry not. The Lord who makes his face shine, makes your face shine, has his face, verse 16, against the evildoers. And he will deal with them in due time. And you can rest assured of that. David, you understand, wants you to have an eternal perspective. Because even if God does not deliver you, this is an important truth you need to hear. Even if God does not deliver you out of hardship the way you want and when you want, you should know without a shadow of a doubt, verse 21, you will not ultimately be condemned. That is, if he is your refuge. This rescue and deliverance that David repeatedly talks about may not be out of your circumstances, but through them. And ultimately, you'll be delivered fully and finally in our triune God's eternal presence where there are no afflictions to be delivered from. And no crying out will be necessary. And no brokenheartedness and no crushed spirits. Just enjoyment and praise and boasting and magnifying and tasting and seeing God forever. And ever. But why? Consider verse 20. Look what verse 20 says. Isn't this an interesting verse? He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. What does that mean? This verse is quoted one time in the New Testament. You know, as Jesus was hang, hanging on the cross, after absorbing the wrath of the sins of the world, you know, the soldiers, Roman soldiers began to go around and break the legs of those who were being crucified. See, crucifixions, they're not quick deaths, okay? Sometimes they could take days for a person to hang there 
and die. But since it was Passover, the bodies of the crucified couldn't just hang there. So the Roman soldiers went to break their legs because those being crucified would use their legs to lift themselves up so that they could catch a breath. And Rome wanted to prevent this to make death quicker so that they could take the bodies down. But when the Roman soldiers got to Jesus, they saw he had already died. So they didn't break his legs. They pierced his side. Then John writes this. Listen to what John says. He says, And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. Jesus was completely and utterly righteous. The only true righteous person to ever live. Everything in this psalm, he gloried in God. He made his boast in the Lord. He took refuge in the Lord, and yet his afflictions were many. He was delivered out of them, but only after he traversed through them. He cried to the Lord, and he was heard, yet it was God's will to crush him. Why? To, verse 22, redeem your soul. So you won't be condemned. So you who go to him for refuge and see yourself as poor will never be cast out. The God I talked about a moment ago, who spoke and created, who is presently holding all those galaxies together with a word of his power, who is actually there with the galaxies that man can barely even take an infrared picture of, he hung on the cross to bear your sins. Isn't that an unfathomable thought? And absorb the cost of them so that you won't be condemned. Even though you deserve to be condemned. And I deserve to be condemned. Is he not a worthy refuge, my friend? Here's our invitation from David in a way that even David can't fathom when he penned these words. Find your refuge in Christ. This is the invitation to him. Find your refuge in Christ, who though righteous suffered to secure your pardon. Call to him, cry to him, be illumined by him, praise him, boast about him, exalt his name together with the saints, obey him, keep your tongue from evil, depart evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. The alternative is to be someone whose God face is toward so that he may be cut off from memory. The alternative is to be counted with the wicked who will be slain and suffer condemnation. But for those who make Christ their righteousness and cry out to him for eternal rescue, he promises to redeem your soul now and forever. And when life is hard, as it will be, he may not give you what you want, but he'll hear you and he'll be there with you and he will give you deliverance fully and finally in the end. Reflecting on this passage when she was going through a medical scare, Kathy Keller said this, Jesus' bones weren't broken, but he, did, he died a painful, hideous death. God didn't save him from that. But God's protection of Jesus extended past the grave. He was raised from the dead. While God may not protect you from every bad thing that might, has, or could happen to you, ultimately, through resurrection, you are safe. She says, I will walk through death and come out on the other side fully healed, restored, saved, and protected. God does not protect us from things that harm us. He protects us as we go through them. 
to the other side of resurrection, where our real hope and happiness lie.